As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. It's estimated that 20 million Americans sell their own blood plasma for cash every year in a market that is barely regulated. On this episode, we'll get an inside look at the blood plasma industry and how it preys on some of the country's most marginalized communities. Joining us is award-winning journalist Kathleen McLaughlin, whose new book is called Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. Kathleen, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. You write, we've built an entire segment of global medicine upon the certainty that some number of Americans simply can't live on a regular income alone. That is a really sobering statement. You're saying they need blood money to supplement their wages and make their lives easier. Tell us more about this. Yeah. So when I first got into this reporting, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to find. I think like a lot of people, I had the idea that people who sell their plasma for money in the U.S. are the poorest of the poor and that it doesn't affect anyone beyond the very poorest. What I found was quite surprising, which is that that a lot of the poorest of the poor, unhoused people, for example, are screened out of the system. And in recent years, it's become much more common for middle-class people or people kind of on the fringes of middle-class to engage in this. As things have gotten expensive, we have higher housing prices, higher inflation, higher cost of education. You can now find, you know, millions of people around the country who have engaged in this practice before, primarily because they earn an extra income from it. When I was doing research, I was curious to know how much the average person gets paid to give plasma each time. And it seemed like that really varied. What, what did you find from all of your research? It totally varies. And it varies by the part of the country that you're in. Um, and it really varies varies depending on how many times you go back. So the ideal for the industry is someone who goes and donates plasma twice a week. So you get optimized, incentivized payments for going more frequently. For example, in most cases, you will earn more for the second donation in a week than you earned in the first donation. So you might get $40 on the first donation and $50 in the second. You will oftentimes get an end-of-the-month bonus if you go eight times, which is twice a week. So the system is really set up to try and financially encourage people to go as frequently as they possibly can. I would say kind of on that 
average, if you're doing it twice a week, um, you can probably earn somewhere between $900 and $1,000 a month. But again, it really varies um, by where you are in the country and how often you can go and which company you go to, how often you take advantage of their bonus points and bonus systems. So it's really a gamified system for people. Why is the practice of paying people for donating whole blood banned in the United States, but it's okay to pay for blood plasma donors? Yeah, that's kind of the $10 million question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, I've been wondering that for years. And in all my research, I haven't found a deliberate open discussion and decision-making process that led to this. It almost feels like it was by accident that the U.S. decided to allow this decades ago, and the system grew and expanded to include a lot more people who were engaged in it than they were in the beginning. And we never went back and looked at it again and said, wait a minute, is this what we want to be doing? So it's kind of, it feels almost, like I said, accidental. And because selling plasma is so stigmatized and so underground for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't know about it. I think that has prevented us from having a larger discussion about whether or not this is something we want to continue to allow. Why is it that pharmaceutical companies have overplayed plasma as this wonder drug when there isn't that much research behind it? Well, I mean, in my case, so I am someone who depends on a plasma drug and it does work like a charm for me. So for some very specific illnesses, plasma makes medications that are incredibly effective. So you have people with something called primary immune deficiency, which is exactly how it sounds. Your immune system is deficient. Um, And plasma drugs are wonder drugs for these kinds of illnesses. There is separately kind of an offshoot in the research realm of attempting to make blood into a miracle substance that can turn back the clock and, you know, bring on the fountain of youth and all these other things. That's the stuff that doesn't have any real scientific grounding to it. But the things that most plasma is used for in the medical world, in terms of medications, those drugs are actually, um, pretty well scientifically founded and backed and they do work. They're just not glamorous things like, you know, blood plasma isn't going to make you look 20 years younger, but if you have a chronic illness like mine, it can help you live a normal life. Tell us more about the difference between whole blood and blood plasma, because it's kind of confusing, you know, for yeah. a lot of us who, who just think about rolling up our, our sleeves and, and, you know, having a needle inserted in, into a vein. Right. So plasma is the liquid component of blood. Basically it's the protein part of your blood. So you take your blood out and this is what happens when you donate plasma, they pull out your whole blood and they separate it in a centrifuge into parts. And there's the liquid part, which is kind of this yellowish, uh, syrupy looking component. And then there are the cells, the white cells, the red cells, the platelets, and that's the other piece. So plasma is the liquid and the protein component of blood, if that makes sense. And what are the big differences about how the industries, how the whole blood industry and the plasma industries are regulated? Yeah, well, I mean, the number one thing you touched on already, which is you can't be paid for whole blood donation. Um, It's also you can't donate as frequently if you're donating whole blood. And there is science behind that because taking 
the entire package of your whole blood um, does leave your body more depleted than removing just the liquid plasma portion of it. So you can donate plasma a lot more frequently than you can with whole blood. But I would say the biggest thing is just the payment. Um, You know, you can't be paid for whole blood, but you can be paid for plasma. What that leads to, I think, is a very weird stigma that surrounds plasma donation. So if you are selling plasma or donating plasma, it is often looked down upon or stigmatized, or we don't talk about it. And I think that's because it's associated with poverty. So you're only doing that kind of thing if you're not wealthy. Um, whereas whole blood donation, it's, it's heroic. We think of that as being this great thing that you're doing for other people, right? But the truth is, both of these actions really do benefit people like myself. We just don't view them that way because of the way the systems are structured. There are, there are so many different questions. I think that, that we have, there's so many different areas to get, to get into with this topic. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a real wide ranging issue, but I'm wondering what the price difference is between what a person sells their blood plasma for, and then Mm -hmm. what the blood industry can turn around and charge for it. Sure. And this, um, I need to be kind of clear on this because it's complicated. The, the plasma drug that I receive Um, once every two months or so costs $13,000 a dose. So you're looking at say 40 to $50 for a plasma donation. The end product made from plasma is incredibly expensive. So $13 or $13,000 per dose. But in the middle, there is a lot that happens. I mean, so my drug is made from the immune particles of potentially thousands of different people. It isn't one single plasma donation. Um, The process is complicated. It's a proprietary mix of chemicals, depending on which company is doing it. There's the sterilization aspect of it. These drugs are quite safe, even though they are made from human blood products. So there is a major process in the middle. The question is how much of that is profit that's going to people in the middle? Um, And is there room to compensate plasma donors more? That's my primary question in all of this. And I don't know the exact answer right now. We're glad you're part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. And we have a special offer for you from our sponsor, Ritual, who you may have heard us talk about before. We've been big fans of Ritual's essential multivitamins and essential protein products for many reasons. We really appreciate that with Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know the what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. And we're excited to tell you about another great product from Ritual, Symbiotic Plus. It's my daily three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic designed to help support a balanced gut microbiome. With Ritual's Symbiotic Plus, I get two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional digestive discomforts like bloating, gas, and diarrhea. Why include a postbiotic? It provides fuel to the 
cells that make up the gut lining and supports a healthy gut barrier. Symbiotic Plus comes in a delayed release capsule that's designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon, an ideal place for probiotics to grow and thrive. Symbiotic Plus comes in an all-in-one single-nested minty capsule. There's no refrigeration needed, so it's easy to take with you when you travel. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. It's time to listen to your gut. Ritual is offering our Nobody Told Me listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash NTM to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. All you have to do is visit ritual.com slash NTM to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Visit Ritual.com slash NTM to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. I'm curious, what is it with insurance? I know you have insurance coverage, but is it something that, you know, makes it at all affordable or is it still oh, expensive yeah. to think I have, about? I have very good insurance coverage. I mean, like everyone else in the U.S., the primary problem with my insurance right now is the deductible, but we all experience that, right? I mean, deductibles are quite high on most health insurance plans right now. And so meeting the deductible is the challenge, but my insurance is great. It covers the cost of the treatment. um, And I meet my deductible in January of every year, but I've been, because I was diagnosed with this so long ago, I have kept good health insurance coverage for a long time. So yeah, there are, I mean, there have been challenges. I know I have heard stories of other people who are on Medicaid and other public systems who've had difficulties in getting these drugs covered, but it is for my particular illness, the it's the first line treatment. So it's very well established as being the thing that works. So insurance coverage does work. You say there's no small amount of guilt in knowing that your continued health and ability to function relies on the financial hardships of others. Tell us more about the feelings you've wrestled with about that over the years. Yeah. I mean, it it is just the kind of thing that stays in the back of my mind, knowing that again, if you go back to this thing with blood donation, you know, we valorize that we really look up to people who donate blood on a regular basis. um, And they're doing it just out of pure altruism because the United States has decided to allow payment for plasma donation we look at it differently, but it's also a different, a different segment of the population, I think, who is engaging in this practice. I still think it's very altruistic for people to give up this substance, but in all the people that I've interviewed, there is a constant refrain. The primary reason they do it is because they need money. So the reason the United States is the biggest source of blood plasma for the entire world is because we allow payment And we have an awful lot of people who need extra money. So it's a very weird balance to be in, just knowing that this thing that you rely on comes at the expense of other people who are having potential hardships. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there is that much known about what the long-term effects of giving plasma regularly are. Although I know short-term you said that, you know, you kind of dealt with feelings of, of feeling bad that people felt ill just after donation. 
Yeah, some people do and some people don't. Some people do it one time and can never do it again because they feel so sick afterwards. Some people will do it for years and years and years on end and feel completely fine. There aren't, there aren't significant long-term studies that show what this might do to a person over a period of many years. So, you know, you have some plasma donors who will do this for 10, 15, 20 years. It just becomes part of their life. And, and we don't know exactly what that might do to people. The most common side effects that I've heard from people along the way are nausea, fatigue, um, it's real and, and the fatigue in some cases can be absolutely crushing. So it's really all over the map. I will say the industry has gotten pretty proactive about advising people to pay attention to their nutrition if they're selling plasma. So they'll tell you to eat a high protein diet make sure that you're hydrated. Like they try and make sure that people remain healthy, but there haven't been really, I think, robust investigations of what this might do long-term. And I know you would even like to see a plasma minimum wage. Tell us more about that. Well, this is something that uh, Luke Schaefer at the University of Michigan suggested, and he's a he runs a Department of Poverty Studies at Michigan, um, and he's looked into this extensively. He has a lot of thoughts about the whole system, and it, when I spoke with him, this really resonated with me because. As I was saying earlier, there isn't, you know, when I try and tell people the average payment for plasma, there isn't one. It's all over the place and it's variable and it depends how often you can go. So, you know, something I've heard from plasma donors that's kind of interesting is if you go to a center, you want to donate and a technician messes up the needle stick and bruises your arm, you'll get deferred for a number of weeks. So that source of income through no fault of your own disappears for a little while. Um, I think if, if there were a more regulated payment system for donors, it would be better for everyone because people would know this is something I'm going to do. And here's the amount of money that I can get from it. I can rely on this as part of my income stream. The way it is, the way it exists right now, even donating long-term can be precarious for people. So yeah. And the minimum wage, I think would potentially better reflect the investment of time and people's health that they put into it. Cause this is not a quick process, most donors, it takes an hour sitting in the chair to have your plasma drawn because it comes, the blood comes out, it spins in a centrifuge and separates into parts, and then your parts re-enter your body. So this isn't um, as quick as donating blood. And so there is a real investment of people's time in addition to everything else. So I think that regulating it or setting some kind of a minimum wage as Dr. as Luke Schaefer suggested does make a lot of sense. You sat and talked with some of these people as you were doing your research for the book. And I want to know what stories really struck a chord with you. I mean, kind of all of them did because this is so personal to me. So it, it's a little um, unnerving to hear people's personal stories. I think that the one of the things that really struck me was all the college students I talked to who sell plasma um, and partly just because they're so young and the idea of doing this when you're 19 years old is um, a little bit scary to me. So I, I talked to one woman outside of a plasma clinic in Rexburg, Idaho, who the process can make you very cold because you have cold fluid reentering your body when the, when the blood parts go back in. 
And she was so chilled that her teeth were chattering throughout our entire conversation. And it was just, I just thought, now, why is someone who's this young feel like they need to do something that makes them this uncomfortable just to make money? So there were a number of conversations. I mean, all of them kind of left me a little, I don't want to say weirded out, but that's basically it. Um, but I didn't, you know, there are plenty of people, people have their own agency. They're able to decide to do this. Um, but I was left with the feeling from a lot of my conversations that this country has failed people economically, and we're just kind of leaving people to do whatever they need to, to get by. And I know the the number of paying plasma centers in the United States really jumped from 2005 to 2021. What happened to cause that? Well, I mean, the U.S. is the is the biggest provider of plasma to the world. So, in addition to people in this country who use these medications, we're providing other countries with that substance as well. I also just think there's been a massive increase in economic precarity in the U.S. So, you have this ever increasing demand for plasma around the world, and then you have Americans who are also in need of money. Um, and I, I think it's just the combination of those two things. How did the pandemic? impact blood plasma donating? Um, There was a shortage for, well, okay. So number one, there was a shortage for a while because the donors really did slow down going. I talked to several people who quit during the pandemic because they felt it was dangerous to be in close proximity to other people like that. And they didn't want to get COVID. So there was that aspect of it. There was also the offshoot that the U.S.-Mexico border was closed for a while, the land border. And one of the biggest sources of plasma in the United States is actually Mexican citizens who cross over to sell plasma in the U.S. It's the practice is banned in Mexico, but they can do it in the U.S. When the border closed, um, thousands of people from Mexico had to stop coming over to do that. The other aspect of it is there was there was a batch, a big batch of clinical trials and um, attempts to use the plasma of people who had had COVID to treat COVID patients. So this is pretty old science and pretty established science using what they call convalescent blood or convalescent plasma to treat people who have a virus or to inoculate them. So there was a mass collection effort before we had vaccines and everything else. There was mass collection effort to acquire the plasma of people who had had COVID and use it in tests and studies to try and see if that could be used to treat COVID. Um, The studies didn't really pan out to much of anything, but in the collection attempt, people who had COVID were getting paid a whole lot more money for their plasma. Um, When I was reporting in Rexburg, Idaho, in this college town, there were actually rumors, which I was never able to confirm, that students there were trying to get COVID so that they could sell their plasma for more money. It was, the rumors were so prevalent that the university actually had to put out a statement telling students not to try to get COVID so they could sell their plasma for more money. So there were all sorts of weird little offshoots um, around the plasma industry related to the pandemic. I was just really surprised to know how big of a thing it is for the plasma donated to be exported overseas. That hadn't even occurred to me. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think most people don't know that. I think that most people 
in Europe where a lot of this plasma goes don't know that. I have I have talked to people in Europe, specifically Switzerland and a few other countries about this system, and they're appalled to know that Americans can get paid for plasma. But in fact, that plasma is going to medication and companies that exist in Europe. So one of the big players in the plasma industry is a Spanish company. Another one is Australians. These are really global businesses. And it just so happens that the United States is the country that has a large population that can be compensated for their plasma. So we have ended up being a big source of the world's plasma. What is now done to kill viruses in blood plasma that wasn't done in the early years of the AIDS crisis? Yeah, it's um, mostly treating with heat. So when scientists figured out, and you know, I don't know, it's a funny thing. We've come such a long way, but hard to imagine in the beginning, scientists didn't know exactly that AIDS was transmitted by blood. Of course, everyone knows about bloodborne viruses now, but back then in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about that. They have since figured out that treating plasma blood with heat kills viruses. So the exchange of this substance between people, there have been a lot of people 30, 40 years ago who were infected with HIV via plasma made medications. That doesn't happen anymore because we figured out how to kill the viruses with heat. So it's a pretty simple process. Um, and it made a huge difference in the safety of these drugs. You say that when you started to write the book, you were writing it for a small marginalized section of people. But once you did the research, once the once the book was written and you got all your thoughts out, it really was for a much wider audience. So who do you hope reads it now? Well, I mean, when I first started, I kind of thought it was a science book. I thought it was going to be a book about this very niche industry and niche medication and kind of a quirky thing that had happened um, and was still continuing to happen. And then when I realized how big and widespread the industry was, I realized that it affects a lot of people in the United States. And I guess my hope is that people will read this and think more deeply about our economic systems and the people who are being failed currently. So, you know, why do we have a huge population of college students who need to sell their plasma? Why do we have middle-class people who are working full-time jobs who need to sell their plasma to go on vacation? Are we okay with being that kind of a country? So it went from being a science story into being a story about the failure of our economic systems. And I hope that people will read it with that in mind. Um, I deliberately tried to not make it uh overly graphic, if that makes sense. So there is a, you know, it's not a gross book, I don't think. Um, it's really much more about our economic fault lines and our economic failures than it is about the specifics of medicine and blood. Yeah, it, it really is a fascinating story. And you point out that the United States is one of just a handful of countries that hasn't banned the practice of paying for plasma giving. I'm wondering why other countries have banned it and, and why we haven't. Well, I mean, that really is the big question in all of this. Other countries have banned it because it has seen it's seen as a Coercion. So you're essentially coercing people to give up a bodily substance. And I, I think that other company or other countries have been able to maintain their bans on paying for plasma because the U.S. allows it. So we kind of provide 
a lot of other places <laughs> with this substance that um, they can't get from their own citizens because the practice of paying people is bad. I don't necessarily have a problem with paying people if this is, you know, what needs to happen to make essential medicines, but I think that it needs to be a fairer system and a more transparent system for people who get paid. Kathleen, at the end of each show, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is the most life altering piece of information that nobody told you about plasma and the plasma donation, the whole plasma industry that you wish you'd known 10 years ago before you wrote the book and you'd like to share to our audience because they might be in your position, might, might have an illness that requires plasma donation. Yeah. You know, I think probably my, um, my experience is unique in one way, which is I lived in China for 15 years. And in the time that I was living in China, they, I wrote a lot about this thing that China had tried to do. They tried to create something called the plasma economy, where they were paying poor farmers for their blood plasma and making medications with it. And I thought this was just the most dystopian, weird, creepy thing. Oh, that would only happen in China. And then I moved back to the US and I discovered we had created the plasma economy without that many people noticing. So I think for me, the altering thing was that I had this perception of the United States as being a fairer country to, to poor people, essentially. And that didn't turn out to be entirely true. And how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and, and learn more about the book and your work? Um, I'm on Twitter. My handle is KEMC and I have a Substack under the same name, KEMC. And the book is available everywhere and from Simon & Schuster. Well, Kathleen, we thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Again, our thanks to Kathleen McLaughlin, whose new book is called Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 